0: Well, hello, and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. I'm Tim Masso, he's Alex Dykes, we're talking new cars. Let's start with the new Silverado, major updates, not quite a
1: midlife refresh, a little bit more than that. No, but it had a midlife crisis, I guess you could say, which is why it needed the midlife refresh. I mean, let's be honest, the Silverado had the most dreadful interior in this last redesign, completely redesigned pickup truck, completely redesigned interior, yet somehow it looked exactly the same as the outgoing model. Um, It really blew people's minds and they saw it in the sales. I mean, Silverado sales uh, just did not take off the way they wanted them to. And even more embarrassing, Ram actually passed Chevy in the pickup truck race. And it was neck and neck for a while. Then month after month after month, they kept gaining ground and gaining ground and gaining ground. And last year, they sold like 60,000 more Ram pickup trucks than Chevy did. So this was a long time coming. And I think it was worth the wait. Although I do have to say, I kind of wish they'd done this a year earlier. It could have helped stem the bleeding. But the new interior is absolutely fantastic. Now, not every Silverado gets it. It's only LT and above. So the base models get the old interior, the newer upper level trims. Those all get the new interior. And it, I think, is now the best interior in a half-ton truck. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, Minefield
0: alert, folks. There is something called the LTD kicking around, which is an upscale version of the old truck that's actually going to be badged as a current year model. So look for that older truck and (laughs) either negotiate aggressively or avoid altogether.
1: Yeah, if good luck for you if you can actually negotiate aggressively, although it might be a little bit more possible at the Chevy dealer right now because they are interested in giving, uh, getting rid of some of these trucks and, of course, trying to improve their sales numbers over RAM. Uh, but the new Google infotainment system is fantastic. It's basically been borrowed out of the Hummer. Uh, the dashboard components were significantly upgraded. So the buttons, the switch gear, the, the, just the look and the feel of the dashboard, all the components are definitely way better than they were before. So, folks, you want to basically remember that there are now basically two different
0: levels of Silverado interior. You've got your work truck, you've got your custom and your trail boss custom, and that's going to be the old interior and priced accordingly. Everything above is going to have a new basically glass cockpit. It's very horizontal emphasis. It's a much mm-hmm. more broad, sweeping, current look. But there are also some important updates like real wood in place of plastic and yes. powertrain interest. As we've now got... A dramatic
1: spike in torque from the four cylinder engine, which might be the news. Other than Indeed. Yeah. And those models no longer have the six cylinder engine available. So you know, once upon a time, the six cylinder was a little bit more available in the lineup. And now it's 2.7 liter turbo 5.3 or 6.2 or the diesel. So they've dropped one of the 5.3 liter flavors in these trims. Again, engine options are gonna be different depending on where you're buying your Silverado, but the upper level trims that most shoppers are going to be interested in those all get these significant improvements. Uh, the 2.7 definitely feels peppier. I had a chance to drive it around Southern California. I also spent some time in the 6.2 two liter new zr2 Uh, that's the main focus of the video that's actually out on the uh the channel right now for review and there's also gonna be a video on the 2.7 liter engine coming up Uh, but i'm really impressed with their engine lineup i have to say the 2.7 liter is interestingly the only base engine in this segment that was actually designed for a pickup truck from the ground up now i mean cadillac got it in the end which was a little bit weird Now a pickup truck engine in a Cadillac. But aside from that, the 2.7 was definitely designed for truck duty. Uh, When you take a look at this, the the general architecture of the engine, the fact that it has cylinder deactivation in a four-cylinder engine, the uh, very low-end torque figures from it, etc. It's a great turbo, and it's logically going to be a little bit less expensive long-term to maintain than the twin-turbo 2.7-liter V6 that we find in the Ford, although it's not going to sound quite as nice. And just to put this in concrete terms, we're now looking at torque of
0: 420 pound-feet with the four-cylinder turbo. That's up over 70 as a peak number from the previous version of the same engine. So remember, 460 is the torque from the 6.2-liter flagship V8. You do get a lot more torque with the diesel. Uh, There's going to be an upcharge in terms of the pricing for that, as the four-cylinder is both your most economical buy and your second most economical in terms of fuel consumption. You're probably going to get 26, 27 with the diesel, but
1: remember, diesel costs more. Yep. And the uh, the turbo lag is a little bit more noticeable on the four-cylinder than it is on the diesel. Interesting. The diesel has a little bit broader of a torque curve. The 2.7 is a little bit peakier, but it's honestly a pretty meaty torque curve. And uh, you can tell why GM is doing this because cafe fuel economy standards are ramping up and trucks need to get more efficient. So expect that 2.7 liter engine to be playing more of a role across the Silverado lineup. Uh, I would not be surprised if long term, uh, something like the 5.3 ends up getting dropped and you just have to spend extra to get the 6.2 if you really want that extra level of power. Yeah. So remember, folks, uh, all new trucks, basically a
0: totally different experience if you're buying the new interior versus the old. The four-cylinder is now probably the power plant to get unless you're going really deep into towing. You'd want the diesel or off-road performance where you'd want the 6.2-liter V8. I don't see the point in getting the 5.3-liter V8 anymore. I think you can write
1: that one off. Yeah, I mean, the 5.3 is pretty fuel efficient and there is a decent customer base in the truck segment that really just wants a a V8. Um, I mean, when we look at the Ford lineup, the best selling pickup truck in America is the F-150 and they still have not been able to banish that five liter V8 from the lineup, even though Ford would really like to see it gone. uh, It still hangs around because customers really are dedicated to that engine and it sells better than I would think it should, to be perfectly honest, because the twin turbo sixes are just better for pretty much everybody. And to put a bow on this, did they mention what this means for the GMC Sierra and the, the upscale twin, to the Silverado? They did. So we've already seen that interior in person, uh, and I will be driving the Sierra in about a week or so, something like that. So basically the same updates that we saw in the Silverado. I don't know why GMC and Chevy hold different launch events for the vehicles since they are so, so similar. Uh, I mean, really, it is a GMC logo, slight tweaked changes to the styling here and there. I prefer the look of the GMC Sierra myself, and I think customers have been preferring it too because while Silverado sales have been down, Sierra sales have been up. So honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if things continue in this direction and uh, people end up liking the the Sierra and buying it more. Um, I think it's still more attractive on the outside, even though the Silverado has received that refresh.
0: From pickups to SUVs, you've got news on the EV front, and it's the new Grand Cherokee. Tell me about the 4xE. Yeah.
1: So, uh, you know, if, if you're in California, apparently we're calling this a ZEV. So it's like I uh, recently was talking to someone that was concerned about ZEV mandates in California. And my gosh, how are we going to, you know, accomplish this goal of, 30-some-odd percent of ZEVs in California by 2025. And Grand Cherokee 4xe is part of the answer because the requirement is not pure battery electric vehicles. It could be a plug-in hybrid. It could be a hydrogen vehicle, et cetera. And we're going to see a lot of plug-in hybrids coming from uh, Jeep and from their parent company, Stellantis, over the next few years. I think it's been working well for them. We see you know good sales on the Wrangler 4xe. It apparently is the best-selling plug-in hybrid in North America at the moment. And uh, they're planning on that being the Grand Cherokee, perhaps, uh, if they continue. Um, and I think that's part of why Grand Cherokee sales have been, uh, been on the upward trend. Jeep's been doing a lot of things that customers are interested in, from the entirely new model to finally offering a three-row version, et cetera. But I guess you should introduce us to uh, this, this general topic here, because we're talking not just about the Grand Cherokee, but all midsize crossovers.
0: Yeah, well, I would say that although the meat of the market is the compact crossover segment and volume sales reflect that, the successor to the true successor to the Great American Station Wagon is probably going to be your midsize two and three row SUV. That's the soccer team's car, that's the car for. Mm -hmm large and growing families, uh, that's where you really step in the door to luxury, I think, from the compact segment. Uh, so yeah. a lot of compact SUVs are lifestyle vehicles. The mid-sizers, I think, really are the family cars for the mature
1: mm-hmm. family. So Yeah, like Grand 4 and CRV, I mean, they're the, they're the new Accord and Camry for, for this, this decade. But if you grew up sitting you know, in the backwards-facing seat in your country squire or whatever, um, you're probably buying a three-row SUV or a crossover for your family vehicle now
0: without a doubt. What minivans were in the 80s, the midsize SUV is now. And the grand is the grandest of them all, both in terms of sales and in terms of size. So tell us a little bit about that for 2022.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised uh, that it took Jeeps so long to make a three-row Grand Cherokee. They They really went kicking and screaming into this, to be perfectly honest. The only reason the Durango exists, according to the folklore, inside of what was then Fiat Chrysler, uh, or even earlier that actually, I should say, the, the Daimler benz era, uh, the, the supposed rationale for the Durango was we cannot make a three-row Grand Cherokee. It's not off-roady enough. It it goes against the brand, uh, etc. And now that we have an absolutely enormous Jeep Grand Wagoneer L, the biggest of them all, Um, Now, all of a sudden, it seems like it's okay to make a three row Grand Cherokee, and I'm sure it's going to sell better than the Durango, but it is worth noting on their sales numbers that Jeep absolutely positively refuses to tell us how many two rows and how many three rows they sell in America. So we just don't know that sales split, but we do know that sales have been up 36% uh, first quarter of 2022 versus first quarter of 2021. So that is a massive, massive increase. Um, and it's not because it got an all-new engine lineup initially, because the 4xe, uh, those sales are actually just going to start this month. It's mainly because of the new look. It's got a complete redesign for the first time in quite some time, uh, got more off-road capable, more luxurious, more expensive. Um, setting the stage for the viewers here, Grand Cherokee Maybe the best seller in this segment, but it's also the most expensive. So keep that in mind. The two-row model starts at 38325 plus a pretty hefty destination. The three-row model, 39725 And if you get carried with options, you can get it over $71,000. It is significantly more expensive than a Toyota Highlander. I mean, this is like Highlander plus RAV4 pricing.
0: This is absolutely true. And it's important to note that at this point, there are a million different Grand Cherokee sizes and configurations and models, and you could pretty much double the price of the vehicle with the right trim and the right options. So just to go over what's probably going to be the most popular, there's the Limited. So you've got Laredo and Altitude and then Limited, which back in the ZJ era was the top of the heap. Uh, Limited is now third from the bottom, and it starts at 46,440. Yeah.
1: And Limited is going to be one of the best sellers. So sales seem to be pretty split between uh, the Trailhawk model, which people will buy for its off-roading ability or for its off-road looks. Let's be perfectly honest here. I can't imagine too many people are really taking their Grand Cherokee rock crawling, but it can do it if you want it to. So that's always been the hallmark of the Grand Cherokee is that if you want A true locking differential, if you want, you know, a rugged rear wheel drive platform with, uh, you know, locking center diff or locking center coupling, I should say, um, the Grand Cherokee will do that. You know, what rated water fording ability approach departure breakover angles that are designed for off-roading and you want it dripping with luxury, then that's the Grand Cherokee. It's the American Range Rover. It always has been.
0: It really is. And I don't know what got into the water at Stellantis, but back in the 2000s, they were the dollar store brand for interior quality. Now with the Ram, with the Grand Cherokee, with the Wagoneer, it's almost like a Maybach exploded inside these things. And and it Mm -hmm. shows that's where they spent the money. The drivetrain has
1: not changed generation over generation, but -hmm. the interior is unbelievable. Yeah, I actually, it it's kind of comes in cycles with, with uh, you know, Christ, the Chrysler group of companies under Stellantis, and generally I'll refer to them as Chrysler just for clarity here. Um, but, you know, Chrysler in the 90s actually had some fantastic interiors, you know, the LH series, the LHS, the New Yorker, et cetera, uh, the first generation Pacifica, the Grand Cherokee of that era, those interiors were fantastic. Then Mercedes bought Chrysler and everything went wrong. Um, when they were finally able to break free from Chrysler, Cerberus didn't do too much good. But oddly enough, Fiat let them just run wild again. And when Chrysler was able to do Chrysler, the interiors just got better practically overnight. Um and that's that's what we see is this progression of of premium interiors, thanks to I have to credit actually Fiat a lot for this. Um, one of the interesting things talking with some of the interior designers at at Chrysler, uh, and again, I'm saying Chrysler here for clarity. but um, when when Fiat came on the scene and they were redesigning the, the Viper, this is an interesting segue into Grand Cherokee land, but when they're redesigning the Viper, um, they had the ability to go and talk to other engineering and design segments within FCA, which is something they were never allowed to do with Mercedes. So the Chrysler engineers weren't allowed to go and just phone up a Mercedes engineer and go, how do you do this? And what's your supplier connection for that? They did. It was very, very separate. And it was very top down. At the Fiat uh, arrangement, um, people were just able to call the luxury Italian brands inside the Fiat portfolio and say, so who do you use for your injection molded supercar dashboards? And the answer back from Italy was, well, why would you do that? Just have somebody hand-stitched leather on that thing. It looks better and it's cheaper. And then a light bulb went off and they said, oh my God, where has this answer been our entire lives? So the interior and the Viper got significantly nicer in that generation, and significantly less expensive. And then they realized this hand-stitched leather dash thing is really nice feeling. Let's stick it in the Grand Cherokee. Let's put it in the Chrysler 300. Let's put it in anything that we can put a hand-stitched dash on, except the Dodge Journey. And it worked. I mean, you got took the Chrysler 300 from ugly to you know hero if, with just some leather on the dashboard. Um, and everything everything practically has received this touch since then. Um, the, uh, the drivetrain, actually, I think it's still, still pretty solid in the Grand Cherokee. The V6 uh, is pretty typical power output. The 5.7 liter V8 is probably not long for this world. Um, sure. We're going to be seeing the new inline six engines from Wagoneer and Grand Wagoneer over time. And then we have the new 4xE which is based off of their new uh, two-liter four-cylinder engine. There's some relationship to the Alfa Romeo engine lineup uh, in terms of theory of design, but it's actually a specific manufactured component for these vehicles in the United States there. Uh, and then we have the, the plug-in hybrid uh, component to that too, which is um, surprisingly almost the same as the plug-in hybrid system in the X5 and uh, Jaguar Land Rover products. And how many
0: miles of real-world all-electric range can we expect in the Grand Cherokee? Wow.
1: Yeah, not a lot. Um, about 25 is what you'll get. It's a reasonably sized battery, but we're talking about the inefficiencies of having a fairly heavy vehicle for the off-roading ability, you know, four-wheel drive, et cetera, the locking diffs, all of that is still there in the 4xe version. But then you get the battery pack. So, um, you know, if you're worried about fuel economy and you cannot plug it in, don't get the 4 by e. The V6 will probably be more fuel efficient. Um, but if you have the ability to plug it in, you can definitely save some money.
0: Now, I want to talk about some of the strengths here. So if you're buying the Grand Cherokee, uh, it's the ideal car for anyone who wants off-road capability. Any standard four-wheel drive Grand Cherokee is going to kick the tar out of a Timberline Explorer or a mm-hmm. Trailsport Honda Pilot. Uh, it's the choice if you want to, if you're the Sybarite, if you want the ultimate in luxury, it is easily the most opulent in this class right now. Okay. And then finally, if you want a tow, it's the natural choice, rivaled
1: really only by the Explorer in today's virtual test. Yeah, and the Explorer is a reasonable amount less capable when it comes to towing than the Grand Cherokee, which surprised me to be perfectly honest. Um, if you want to tow 7,000 pounds in your midsize SUV uh, or crossover, whatever you particularly want to call these vehicles, um, honestly, it's a marketing term, so you, you do you kind of a thing. Um, you have one option and that is Grand Cherokee or you can spend a lot more for a real luxury you know, vehicle and get a BMW or a Land Rover that might tow more or oddly enough, you have the Grand Cherokee platform in the Dodge Durango and they'll do 700 yeah. pounds. Uh, I happen to own one of those for that specific reason. Um, but outside that, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. And, um, you know, the Explorer tows nicely. It definitely tows better. If you're towing 5,000 pounds regularly and and you're interested in something that's going to be a little bit more durable long-term, I'd buy the Explorer over the Highlander. But if you're really doing those heavier weights, you're going to need the Grand Cherokee for them. Yeah, and
0: definitely consider, because they're no longer on the same platform, there's the Durango. It's going to give you a three-row. It's somewhere between the Grand Cherokee and the Grand Cherokee L in size. Uh, very close to a Grand Cherokee in terms of starting price. And yes, it can tow. Uh, up to 8,700 pounds versus a max of about 7,200 for the Grand Cherokee as we have it now. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the podium, I guess the second place on the podium, goes to the Toyota Highlander. They moved uh, 66,000 of them so far this year it's number two on our list in terms of sales volume and it's down 7.42 percent and so really after the grand cherokee this contest becomes the biggest loser because all of the others are down in volume annualized auto sales for march in the u.s were 13.3 million and last year at the same time it was about 17.5 so the market has cooled considerably mostly down to supply
1: but what does the highlander do best alex The best feature of the Highlander has to be the available hybrid system. If you want to have a three row crossover that doesn't break the bank and you want decent fuel economy, you know, 35, 36 miles per gallon, then you're going to want the Highlander hybrid. Um, Highlander hybrid also does pretty well when it comes to people moving because they've maintained a very square profile. It's very practical. It's reliable. It's that very rational, pragmatic choice in this segment. You can get eight seats in a decent number of Highlander versions. Whereas interestingly enough, uh, a lot of the other options in the segment, like the Ford Explorer, unless you're talking about the base model, it actually ends up at six seats uh, for the most part, which is kind of funny. Um, And Toyota maintains that high seat count, even in some of the mid-level trims, which is definitely handy. It's also going to be a much easier car to maneuver. It's got a
0: 112-inch wheelbase, which makes for a more wieldy vehicle. Remember, the Grand is now either 116.7 or 121.7, so it's a much bigger vehicle. And the long wheelbase Grand Cherokee now is comparable to something like a Tahoe in terms of distance between the axles. So the Highlander is going to be a much more maneuverable vehicle. If you're not out in the broad boulevards of the suburbs of the country and you got to
1: get through towns and cities, definitely consider the Highlander on that basis, too. Yeah, the Grand Cherokee does turn tightly, which is nice. So that was definitely like a, a key design consideration is it needs to turn tight. But yeah, length, it's not going to fit in a compact parking spot.
0: <laughs> no, without a doubt. The fuel economy it concretely is just incredible with the Highlander hybrid. Now it's no longer V6 based. It's now a four cylinder base. So it's not a performance hybrid by any means, but it is going to give you a 35 miles per gallon combined. And I think it's like 35, 35, 35 with all wheel drive,
1: which is yeah, bonkers when very, it's- very good. The, the only thing to keep in mind with the Highlander hybrid is if you are, are living in an area where you're concerned about winter traction and winter weather, you might want to skip the Highlander hybrid and opt for another hybrid in this segment or adjacent with a mechanical all-wheel drive system because they are going to perform a lot better on those surfaces. Yeah, without a doubt, and that's an important consideration. But
0: since so much of the market for these vehicles is down in the Southwest, especially in Southern California, um, you know, obviously individual discretion. But that's probably where the two-wheel drive SUV market is. And we should mention that a lot of these vehicles that we're talking about do have all-wheel drive and two-wheel drive options. So mm-hmm. um, package to suit. But you will have the option if you just want to
1: maximize your fuel economy either way. Yep. And this kind of leads me, and now I should ask this question here, since this seems to be such a hot button topic. So yep. uh, just random question here, Tim. So is the Grand Cherokee a crossover or is it an SUV?
0: Well, I would define a crossover as something with independent suspension, a unibody construction. And uh, there are none. I, I believe there are non-locking all-wheel drive options on that vehicle. So I would say it's a crossover at this point. If you go back to the 90s when the ZJ had two live axles, uh, if you take a look at something like a Forerunner, which is technically in the same size class by interior volume, or a Bronco or a Wrangler, um, unlimited with four doors. I think all those vehicles are clearly SUVs, or maybe the, the vintage term would be four by four. We could talk about the Bronco and the Forerunner because they are in the interior volume and sales volume class to be part of this comparison. But in my opinion, everything we're talking about today is a crossover.
1: Yes, which is true, and people get offended by that. It's it is it is an interesting construct. Like I would argue that the Grand Cherokee and Range Rover line are some of the original crossovers. To be perfectly honest. Because if crossover is supposed to be a blend of SUV, truck-like, and car-like characteristics, then honestly, the Grand Cherokee and the Explorer are the only ones on this list that are crossovers, and everything else is just a minivan with a bigger box and all-wheel drive.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that, too, especially when you look at the sales volume and you look at the the product class and you see the Subaru Outback thrown in amongst a bunch of, you know, body on frame trucks Mm -hmm. like the Wrangler. And you're like, okay, these things are not all like the other. As far as the DOT is concerned, they're all the same. Mm -hmm. But I think the buyer buys them for very different reasons and no one would ever cross shop like a Wrangler Rubicon and an Outback, even a wilderness. That's not going to happen.
1: Probably not, although it is. I do find it interesting that that Subaru fans are very ardent in their love of the brand, and uh, and I will occasionally run across one that will will vehemently claim their Outback can go anywhere a Wrangler can go, and it it just cannot.
0: Yeah, I, I'm gonna call the Subaru Outback and everything along those lines, even the Wilderness. Like this is the heir apparent to the AMC Eagle.
1: Not it is the- it was fantastic. End. Yeah, that was fantastic. Way ahead of its time. Nobody wanted it then, but now that's all they seem to want. Yeah, bring a trailer. Rocking it on with the Eagle. All right. It brings us along to Ford Explorer. Yeah. Now,
0: if you buy the Grand for luxury and towing and off-roading and you buy the Highlander for the fuel economy... Well, the Explorer is probably the driver's car in this group because you can spec it first as a rear-wheel drive, two-wheel drive vehicle that's got that rear-biased handling quality. You can also go full-blown ST and have yourself a hot rod. So I definitely see this being the driver's car and the
1: second best for towing in our virtual comparison. I would agree that I I like the way the Explorer drives and the base engine is fantastic. I think it has the best base engine in this segment. It's essentially the same drivetrain just lifted right out of the Ford Ranger, 2.3 liter turbo, 10 speed automatic transmission, great transmission, great engine. Um, the ST has always always made me scratch my head a tiny bit because in, I, I want it to be Durango SRT and it's not, um, And that makes me sad a bit. Um, It doesn't handle like the Durango SRT. It doesn't accelerate like the Durango SRT. And I think there was a little bit of lost opportunity there. They do crank the dial up, but they don't crank it up to 10. They crank it up to like, you know, eight and a half. And uh, it's priced accordingly. So I can't blame them. It's it's priced midway between, you know, a 5.7 liter V8 Grand Cherokee and the 6.4 liter Durango. It's just not that next level of crazy where I really wanted it to be.
0: Yeah, it's almost like they scaled up the previous generation Ford Taurus SV or, or um, where where's my super high output SHO. And they turned that into a truck. It, it's very much like they made it bigger. They gave it a hatch and it became the Explorer ST. And, you know, the last SHO people said, well, it's a little big. It's a little heavy. It's a little bit ponderous. And why did they turn a mid-size Taurus into a full size for this generation? Well, now we've got the successor to that. And You can get six or seven seats. You get 400 horsepower and 415 Mm -hmm. pound feet. And again, just to put everything in perspective here, we're talking zero to 60, about 5.1, 5.2 seconds. So not head snapping quick, but it's a very quick driver-oriented
1: vehicle for this class. Right. And it is within... Reaching distance, price-wise, of the top-end trims of most of the competition. So yeah, there's there's a, a reasonable number of options here that will get up into the 50s. And the ST is more expensive than that, but it's not that next level of expense where you find you know the very top-end Grand Cherokee, uh, for instance. So if you're cross-shopping, you know Summit Reserve Grand Cherokee L, then uh, Explorer ST is right there in that same price category. Actually, a little bit less expensive, to be honest. So I'm going to recommend with the Explorer, whether we get the lincoln
0: aviator hybrid power plant here or not i'm going to say with the explorer skip anything with the word hybrid in it it's just not worth your while get an st for fun for driving fun get timberline if you want to do soft roading uh, get the four-cylinder any other case the four-cylinder all-wheel drive it's going to be 23 miles per gallon combined it's got 300 horsepower 310 pound feet of torque if you told tim masso like back in high school in the 90s that there was going to be a 300 horsepower explorer in the year 2022 you'd say tim tell me about what you think this is i'd be like v8 svt high performance model
1: i would not have said base four cylinder but that's what it is it's great base four cylinder exactly And yeah, the hybrid is the hybrid is tricky. It had so much promise in the real world. It doesn't deliver the fuel economy that they hoped it to have. Last one we tested was supposedly rated for 28. we got about 26 miles per gallon in it. Honestly, if you treat the 2.3 liter engine nicely, you'll be getting in the low to mid twenties, even on my daily commute where I drive up and over a 2200 foot mountain pass and then spend some time in traffic. I'm getting 23 miles per gallon in a Ford Explorer with a 2.3 liter engine this week right now. Um, and you're not going to be getting that much better with the hybrid. And if you plan on towing anything with the hybrid, last time we did a towing trial in that model, uh, we actually got better fuel economy in a Durango with the 5.7 liter V8 and full-time all-wheel drive than we did in a rear-wheel drive hybrid Explorer driving on the same route with the same trailer. So um, hybrid fuel economy promises are a little bit hollow on that one. If you're looking for the hybrid, just get the Highlander.
0: And I do believe you can still
1: tow 5,000 pounds
0: with the four-cylinder.
1: You can, yeah, actually. The to- towing ability of the hybrid and the four cylinder are basically the same. And it's only the uh, the the upper end, you know, three liter twin turbo V6 that gets 55, 5600 pounds, something like that. It's just under 6,000 pounds uh, in the Explorer. So, you know, there's really not a huge difference in towing capacity. Yeah. So, you're going to want to keep in mind here it's a
0: large vehicle for the class that has over 150. 150- Cubic, I think it's 152 cubic feet of interior space. Anything over 150 is large for the class, but you are going to be stalled at, uh, I think you can be stalled at six or seven seats here. You can't get an eight seat capacity, even though interior wise,
1: it's a big vehicle. Yeah, there's no eight seat version, and the vast majority of Explorers only have six seats. So uh, it's really basically just the base trim that has seven. Everything else is going to have six for 2022, which does strike me odd um, because eight seats seems to be a, a common ask. A lot of people I know want that eighth seat and that's why they end up in Highlander and Pilot um, because even though they're smaller and they're more cramped for that eighth person, they they want the idea of eight people in their car.
0: I would also say that realistically this vehicle, um, it's got a lot of space if you need to carry stuff. It's got 18 cubic feet. If you have all the seats up, it's got 48 with one seat down. And if you just lay down all the seats, you get a pretty reasonable 87.8. So if you want to carry stuff inside mm-hmm. the vehicle, this has a very orthodox SUV shape. It's flat on top. It's squared off at the back. It doesn't look like an SUV, you know, an SUV coupe. It really is a good big box for carrying things when you yeah.
1: don't want tow and you don't want to throw it on a roof rack. My only main complaint with the Explorer is the infotainment system, which is really feeling old now. Um, it has the the portrait style orientation screen, which was very in vogue when this came out. Volvo was doing it for a while. Now the Mach E has it as well, um, but unlike the Mach E, the screen is quite small and and very tall. So the result is that if you like CarPlay or Android Auto, you're stuck with this absolutely minuscule CarPlay interface, which I think has to be the smallest CarPlay interface. I have ever experienced. Um, Maybe I have seen something smaller that has been banished from my mind, but it is very tiny and it makes it awkward to actually interact with. Even stranger, the bottom part of the screen, unlike the Mach-E when CarPlay is up, the bottom part of the screen does nothing else. It only has track forward, backward, and then the display of whatever it is that's playing from CarPlay, which is rather redundant since CarPlay is on top of it and no support for Apple CarPlay and portrait orientation. Um, But next year, it looks like Explorer is going to get a pretty significant refresh if the rumors out of China are accurate. In China, at least, we know it's going to get a ginormous screen across the dashboard, uh, practically stretching from the driver's side air vent halfway into the passenger seat, it appears.
0: Yeah, In terms of designs and redesigns, uh... This will become more relevant when we get to the Honda Pilot, but the Grand Cherokee is new for this year. The Highlander was new for 2020. The Ford Explorer was new for 2020. So some of these vehicles are approaching their midlife redesign. If you can stretch your buying period another year, that might be worth waiting for, especially in the case of the Explorer. Um, Since we haven't really broached this too much, uh, let's. Rewind a bit. Is there anything you can say since all these cars in theory have Android Auto, Apple CarPlay, and a Wi-Fi hotspot of some kind? Uh, between the Grand, the Highlander, and the Explorer, can you break down what works and doesn't work with their infotainment systems?
1: Oh, okay. So let's see here. Uh Explorer has the oldest feeling of them all, I would say. Um because the software itself is fairly old. It's one of their previous generation sync products. Um, Android Auto, Apple CarPlay, that, that kind of usual stuff, but no, nothing over the top. There is an LCD instrument cluster in the Explorer. It doesn't do a lot. Um, Ford's LCD instrument clusters, outside of some of their performance vehicles. They don't really change in theme a great deal. They're not user-adjustable. Um, the Highlander, no full LCD cluster at all. Toyota doesn't seem to be in on that just yet. It does receive their previous generation of their infotainment software, so expect in a year or two for that to to be updated with their new internet connected version. Uh, The upside to the old system in Toyota's lineup is that it still works when the internet is not working. So if you're in an area with no cell coverage, the nav works. If you're in a new Toyota with with no cell coverage, the nav does not work at all, there's nothing. Um, in the Grand Cherokee, it gets the latest version of Stellantis' new Uconnect 5 system, which I think is the best in this segment at the moment. Um, it's certainly the snazziest. The LCD instrument cluster is fully configurable, heads-up display available. Things like night vision are available in the, the Jeep lineup as well. Uh, there's also a passenger side LCD screen because, hey, why not? So they just coded the interior with LCDs. You can get... You know, Amazon Fire, Rear Seat Entertainment Systems. Um, If you have the ultimate in LCDs, then there's a Grand Wagoneer, which has got like 75 inches of screen real estate. It's a little bit more demure in Grand Cherokee, but there's still a lot of display going on. And as of this year, the three-row Grand Cherokee now gets the passenger display as well. So uh, three-row Grand Cherokee was the first new vehicle to launch on this platform. Passenger display wasn't ready yet. So the passenger display launched in the two-row model. Now it's going to be available in the three row model as well. Um, So if you want to, you know, feel a little baller, like you're rolling around in a Mercedes or a Porsche with a screen for your passenger, you can do that. Um, The passenger side screen does have a a few functional reasons. Mainly it's there for show. Let's be honest. Um, You can mirror one of the rear screens so you can watch TV with your kids in the back. Um, you can plug in an HDMI input and do whatever it is you would do via HDMI on that passenger screen. And then you can cast that to the rear seats as well. So if you want to stream off of your iPad or your smartphone via the HDMI port and then have the kids watch it in the back, you can do that as well. And it is sheltered from the driver's view. so The driver cannot actually see it. There's a, a prism in there so that way that it's not visible. Um, Aside from that, there are a few additional functions. There's some navigation functions, etc. But you still can't CarPlay on it. You can't Android Auto on it. Um, You can't Media Browse on it. So functionality is a little limited. Uh, But surprisingly, it is becoming a relatively inexpensive option because it's actually going to be standard on some trims now.
0: So you know, as we mentioned earlier, if you want outright opulence, the grand Cherokee, especially for hospitality regarding your passenger in the front and the back, it's going to be the natural choice, but remember you do pay for the privilege. Yeah. There's a built-in amount of headroom in grand Cherokee pricing that doesn't exist with the others, that top out in
1: the mid to high fifties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pilot though, it speaking of pricing Pi- pilot is shockingly expensive to, if I'm perfectly honest here, starting price, 37,580. Uh, Its starting price rivals Grand Cherokee's starting price. It's only about $1,000 less expensive. It's significantly more expensive than Telluride or Palisade or Explorer, etc. And um, to be honest, you're getting one of the older options in the segment that really feels like it needs a redesign.
0: Yeah, I think we should probably just do an end run around the Chevy Traverse. We'll get to it last. Um, Number four on our list, we were talking a bit about um, the Pilot being old. And yes, it is. Redesign last for 2016. It's the old timer in the segment. It's mm-hmm. also the smallest in almost every measurable way, and that starts with the size of it. So I tried to figure out who would buy this vehicle, like who's the ideal buyer compared to the others, which all have some sort of expertise yeah. or high, high point. Size. Size and maneuverability, and that's it. Parking it. I can't think of anything else
1: other than expected reliability. Third row is very roomy in pilot for its size, I would say. So if you want something, you know, smaller and you still want a good size third row, then pilot is a good option. But yeah, aside from that, there's not a lot of reason to buy the pilot. It does handle well, it has a torque vectoring rear axle, you know, basically has accurate super handling all wheel drive systems. Everything is is very acceptable with pilot, but nothing shines, nothing comes out as class leading in any real respect. The infotainment system is old. Um, the dashboard feels very last generation and it does not appear to be getting a refresh anytime soon. I mean, they just gave us a refreshed uh, and actually I mean, the passports relatively new, same design. They gave us a refreshed one of those. Now uh, we also got a refreshed uh, bridge line, same interior there as well. So all indications point to this interior hanging out for probably a little longer than it really should. Um, second row seats are relatively reasonable. Again, nothing stupendous here. Um, People have been very offended by the nine speed automatic transmission, though. So this is something that people should keep in mind if they're really looking at that reliability quotient here. You are I would bet against the the pilot, to be perfectly honest. I would bet long term reliability on Highlander, Telluride and Palisade before I put any money betting on pilot reliability.
0: And that's a good point because you only have one powertrain option. You can choose all-wheel drive or two-wheel drive, but with the Honda Pilot, unlike the Jeep, for example, or the Ford Explorer, which gives you an array, uh, you're getting it one way. You're getting it with a six-cylinder. It has about 280 horsepower, 260 pound-feet of torque. It's attached to a problematic nine-speed that both hunts a lot and tends to shift hard. Um, and can be kicked down, which is really annoying. Um, The equivalent, I mean, they do sort of have something mirroring the super handling all wheel drive from Acura, but it's lost with a bulky transmission and an engine that's merely adequate. And that kind of mutes the driving enthusiasm.
1: Yeah, I find myself very torn on the nine speed auto. It's, um, it is not, it is not smooth all the time. And that is just the way that it is, but it is a marvel of engineering in its own right. So for viewers that don't know, the nine speed automatic in the Honda is made by ZF of Germany, the famed transmission company that makes fantastic eight speed rear wheel drive transmissions for BMW, Audi, Rolls Royce, Bentley. I mean, everything in that segment uses a ZF transmission af- aside from Mercedes. And to be honest, Mercedes should use a ZF transmission. And so everybody had these huge expectations for their front wheel drive transmission. And uh, the nine speed has been kind of a, an odd duck. Um By its very design, the entire mission for the 9-speed was to have a super-duper aggressive first gear for good launches, good launch performance, and Pilot does that well. It has a really good 0-60 to time. It's like six and a half seconds. It's one of the fastest in the segment. And it has decent highway fuel economy because ninth gear is super, super high. So out on the open highway, you know, 80 miles an hour where you can legally drive in Texas at 80 miles an hour fuel economy and those higher speeds, it's going to be excellent on that transmission since it was designed for the Audubon. The problem is everything in between because they wanted to package it in a really compact case because they wanted it to be uh, lightweight, et cetera. All those realities in the transmission design meant that it had to use an unconventional clutch setup. And that unconventional clutch setup just will never feel or shift like a traditional auto. So I think true reliability numbers have actually been improving on the Pilot because dealers initially, uh, the customer would complain, the dealer would drive the car, and they'd go, "Whoa, that does not feel like a Honda. We should replace the transmissions." There were all these all these early transmission repairs that were going on, and Honda had to spend a lot of time and money educating Acura dealers and Honda dealers that. This is how this transmission behaves. This is how it shifts and it's it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. So I think after that that initial spate of 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 reaction, I think the numbers are actually looking more appropriate now and they're looking okay, but know that it's just not going to feel like the Highlander or anything else. And here's the problem. There are a lot of
0: compromises in this powertrain, but they don't yield although Again, there's the high-speed cruising, but if you are not in top gear, cruising Mm -hmm. along in the fuel economy gear, you get 22, 19, 26. So 22 is your combined, 19 is your city, which this transmission hates. And then 26 is the best case scenario, though you can beat that. You're going to beat it under very defined circumstances. It should be noted that this is the exact same rating you're going to get with a six-cylinder standard wheelbase Grand Cherokee, which has so much more to offer. It's a newer design. It's more luxurious. It will tow a hell of a lot more. Although in theory, you can tow with all-wheel drive 5,000 using the Honda. Uh, Standard all-wheel drive, I mean, gives you... 5,000 pounds and two-wheel drive gives you 3,500. Um, so you really do have to opt for all-wheel drive to get an acceptable tow rating. And then you have to deal with a 111 inch wheelbase. So you don't really want to be towing this thing anywhere near its capacity. There is no benefit to this powertrain's compromises, not towing, not fuel economy, not drivability.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the advantages are essentially limited to quick zero to 60 runs. So zero to 30 feels very peppy because that, that, the first gear effective ratio in pilots like 21 to one, it's, it's a super duper low first gear. Um, and then, you know, maybe real real world fuel economy at 80 miles an hour, which is a limited use case at best because there's what one state in the union where you can drive that fast legally. Not that not, I mean, everybody does it in California. No one's doing it legally, but theoretically in Texas, you're doing it legally.
0: Yeah, and i do think it's worth mentioning it does have a jackrabbit start right out of the gate it's got a very jumpy tip in and it will go from zero to 16 about 6.2 seconds which is superb when you look at the weight and you look at the power and you add it all up and you wonder how is this possible and a lot of ratios in the transmission and a very aggressive first um so it could be a fun car to drive at maybe like six seven tenths yeah. but if you stretch its legs you're gonna find
1: there's nothing else there. And And I would say that Honda's Honda's software on that nine-speed is partly to blame because um, Jaguar Land Rover and Stellantis they use the same nine-speed, and for the most and so does Nissan actually. And for the most part, those three manufacturers have worked out the software kinks, and they shift much more normally. And Honda just has not. Yeah, that's
0: worth mentioning. I think the ZF 8-speed that's used for longitudinal applications has a great reputation uh, across brands, whereas this 9-speed, it's very much a hit or miss. And what's Mm -hmm. odd to me is that knowing all the shortcomings with years of production under their belt, Honda hasn't been able to do anything about it again. This is a vehicle that was new six years ago.
1: Yeah, oddly, oddly, there's an interesting tale behind the ZF9 speed. Um, I was talking with some Volvo engineers who uh, said quasi off the record, uh, so I won't tell you who they were, but they said that Volvo had been benchmarking the ZF9 speed automatic and uh, there were a lot of promise from ZF and then they were able to like hold off because they weren't sure which direction they were going in their development cycle ended up in a window where the design for the 9-speed was more complete and then they benchmarked the production intent version and they said never mind we'll just go with the ICEN version so they they went with an ICEN 8-speed which is what Lexus uses and uh Vol- a Honda apparently had basically put all their eggs in one basket And liked the early prototype units, which did not use the dog clutches, but the final production unit, in order to meet the production requirements of space and weight and constraints, etc., ended up having those clutches, and then Honda was left holding the bag. So this is why it's
0: important when you're looking at a vehicle that has only one powertrain option to do a lot of test driving. Don't drive it for 10 minutes. Don't take it around the lot. Make sure you get it out onto the highway, drive it through town, really get a sense of what you're dealing with. And it's important to remember that this is going to be the same if you're buying the truck pre-owned because it has hardly changed in over half a decade. So take every opportunity to know that you're at peace with this before you sign. Uh, because a lot of people right now feel pressured to pull the trigger if they find a vehicle new or used for sale. More than any other vehicle in this test, you're going to want to make sure you get along with this one.
1: And I would also say that uh, to su- to some extent, people will become used to the way things behave as well when you live with something. Um, when when you're like most automotive journalists, where you know I'm driving two to three different cars a week, every week, plus launch events. So literally hundreds of cars a year. What begins to annoy us is the thing that's different. Um, But whether or not it will bother you long-term is more of a personal choice. Like I have a Durango and every time I'm in it, I'm still annoyed that the button to close the hatch is not up here where it should be. It's down here on the side. And it's a very, rational, pragmatic reason why they put it there. The answer from Stellantis is, well, all of our buttons are down low because then kids can push them to close the hatch and they can't reach the hatch or short people, they can push that, they can't reach up there. And I have met people that are, you know, adult set four foot something that this is true. They cannot reach the button to actually close the hatch that way, but it's out of the ordinary. So if it's different than the 10 other cars I've driven recently, I go back to that one, ready to find the button somewhere and it's not there.
0: I think rocky shifts in particular live kind of in the in the same universe as CVTs as something that is going to be polarizing and, and noticeable,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: especially if the transmission is slow to react and then you get a rocky shift. It's like adding insult to injury. That, that's why I say, if you can remember the problems with the earliest versions of the Jeep Cherokee, which debuted with that nine-speed box, uh, you just want to be super careful about liking this vehicle. There's a lot to recommend the pilot dynamically. Um. The transmission not going to be part of it. Now, since this is the oldest architecture of the five we're talking about, do you have anything to say for or against the infotainment capability? You've got Android, you've got Apple, you've got Wi-Fi, but are there limitations within the scope of
1: those capabilities? You know, Honda updated it finally, so it doesn't have the old system that it debuted with. Um, now it has basically the same software as the uh, minivan line, which is definitely an improvement. So it's ha- you know, Accord, Accord Odyssey, and, and Pilot now have basically the same software. It's just not—it's not flashy. It does what you want it to do. Um, factory navigation is a little boring. Um, the interface feels a little bit old, but honestly, once you plug your smartphone in, like a lot of shoppers do, it's going to be just fine. So remember folks, you can get eight seats with the pilot,
0: but make sure that you like the way it feels internally on paper. It's over 150 cubic feet, which is on on the upper end of the scale for the class. But as so much is packed between the axles and the overall length is relatively short, make sure you like the space utilization because just reading the specs on paper don't really describe uh, the feeling of being inside it, especially in the back. Yep. Okay. Number five on our list, and this is a vehicle I just don't get. Honestly, if you want a lot and you're not particular about how you get it, uh, the Chevy Traverse is your bag. Uh, this would yeah. have been the Equinox a year ago, but the Equinox dropped off the face of the earth due to supply issues. This is now the fifth
1: top selling true mid-size SUV crossover you can buy. And Traverse sells fairly well, to be perfectly honest. Um, but it's yeah, I mean it's the sizzler of of sized crossovers. Like you'll get a lot of food on your plate, um, and it won't be spectacular, but you probably won't get dysentery. So, you know,
0: yeah. yeah. So in,
1: in terms of like explaining this, it's got
0: one hundred and fifty-seven point three cubic feet of interior space. Uh, you can get eight seats. In terms of cargo capacity, very good. It's a big box. You get twenty-three behind the third it row. Has huge cargo area. It gets even bigger when you put a row down, you get 57.8. Mm-hmm. It gets even bigger, uh, 98.2 cubic feet when you put both rows down, which is not
1: quite minivan huge, but it shapes. everything else in this test. I mean, that's, that's that is the big selling point for Traverse is that if you have a big family and you go for a test drive and you jam seven or eight people in any of the things that we've been talking about so far, Traverse will feel the roomiest by far. Um, and that's why my sister in law had the GMC variant of the previous generation. So um, one should mention that the current generation GMC Acadia is actually a step smaller. So yes. in the General Motors lineup, they decided to re rearrange their, their crossover entries, and now Acadia and Traverse are not exactly the same thing, and Enclave is not exactly the same thing, etc. So uh, Acadia got Highlander-sized, and Traverse got even bigger. It's over 204 inches long, um, so it is definitely a big crossover. Um, and it's perfectly acceptable. The engine is is nice. The nine speed automatic does not have the same nine speed issues we find in the Honda. It's a totally in house design um, by by General Motors and Ford. Um, and so, I mean, everything there is just fine. But it doesn't scream. It doesn't scream opulence. It doesn't scream off roading. It screams, I needed a minivan, but I didn't want one. Is what it screams. I think.
0: Yeah. The, the one thing. This is the space and volume truck, though. Keep in mind, if you want the most leg room in this class. Of the cars we discussed, that's going to be the Explorer with 114 plus total combined. Uh, this is actually going to be a little bit smaller. It's not a huge vehicle, though it has a 204 inch overall length. Uh, total legroom is just over 112, just under 113, so it's not going to be the roomiest thing inside. Yep. Headroom is good but not great. You can get eight seats if you want them, uh, but for the most part, this is the one that gives you mass interior volume, a huge yawning roof on which to tie things down, and it will tow 5,000 pounds with the tow package. But keep in mind, as big as it is, standard towing is going to be 1500 pounds
1: with the Traverse. So make sure you know what you're getting if you plan to tow with this. Yep. And I'm so glad you brought up the combined Lager measures because that is generally the best way to compare vehicle A to vehicle B. I would put one tiny asterisk on there as we usually do in, in Ford videos. And that is that Ford does not usually play the same game with legroom measures as everybody else does. So Ford tends to fudge their legroom numbers, at least what I would consider fudging legroom numbers. There's no statutory requirement for the measurement process in America uh, for legroom. Important thing to keep in mind. And there are SAE standards for this, but there are varied SAE standards and manufacturers may use the standard they prefer. So what Ford does is they measure front legroom with the front seat at 100% seat travel. And then they move the seat to the 80th percentile travel location, and then they measure rear seat legroom. So it's a little difficult to tell exactly how Ford numbers stack up to the competition because they're not using the same measurement standard as everybody else. But generally speaking, you can look at a Ford legroom number and look at it and go, it's probably smaller than that. We're in the neighborhood, but it's probably not actually that.
0: And I think I'll throw this out just because we lavished so much praise on the Grand Cherokee. But I had to retest this the other day at the New York Auto Show just to make sure I wasn't crazy. But I got the feeling, being just over six feet tall, and you're a similar height, that it didn't have that much headroom for something so big. Like I felt the roof, the roof felt a little bit low
1: yeah, the roof line is definitely low. Um, and the reason for that is because the body is so high. So um you know, aerodynamics, they need to meet modern fuel economy standards, et cetera. so and they wanted that sleeker look. So the roof line has dropped a little bit, I think, versus the previous generation, and it's still very high off the ground. so the re- the result is this sort of almost station wagony, I guess, uh, body on the inside, especially of the Grand Cherokee L. Um, and of course, Jeep's desire for off-road angles, means that, that the cargo load and height of the grand Cherokee is also going to be significantly higher. So if you're a short person, especially grand Cherokee can be tricky to live with. Um, you know, my mom's five too, and she loves her grand Cherokee. And my dad has to carry a stool around with them so that way she can get up into her own car <laughs> to drive it. So, you know, she has to hike herself up at almost 80 years old. This is not a pretty picture. Um, so definitely keep that in mind. It would be a lot easier for her to get in and out of any of these other options. But the moment you have you know true true transfer cases, true locking differentials, approach breakover departure angles, you know 27 inches of water fording ability, all of that just adds massive height to uh, an SUV. And Grand Cherokee is definitely in that category. And you will notice that if you park a Grand Cherokee and I don't know, say like a, a, Kia, a Hyundai Santa Fe next to it, that the cargo height uh, floor is maybe about 10 inches higher in Grand Cherokee. Um, it also has not quite a full size spare tire. But the temporary spare tire in the Grand Cherokee is bigger than most of the standard size tires you'll find on a mid-size sedan. Uh, Last one we were in had a 235 width spare tire. Um, So it has got takes up a lot of room to have things like that, that that give you that extra layer of security and capability off-road, but have compromises on-road. So now,
0: before we talk about Alternatives and we should talk about alternatives because just being the top five selling doesn't make you the best by any means. Of the vehicles we've discussed, which one and in which trim or which powertrain would you pick for your needs? And I'll pick mine too. Oh, that is a tricky one. Uh, only of the ones we have discussed, uh, yeah, just of our virtual comparison test. You can't, um... yeah, I would have to go with oh, Grand Cherokee L. Then, okay, Grand Cherokee L. I think I'm going with an Explorer four-cylinder, all-wheel drive. I'm going to take that balance of decent power and performance, interior volume, and a reasonable towing. And that's going to be a great all-around, live-with-it lifestyle vehicle, and I'd be pretty comfortable. I would love to see what we get with the infotainment refresh, but I think as is, as, as we've discussed them in current spec, that's
1: the one I would take. Hmm. Yeah, my my uh, my main reason for the Grand Cherokee L would be the towing ability. If I if I was a person outside of my situation that did not need to tow, I probably would choose Highlander Hybrid. To be honest, I mean the fuel economy, especially in today's world of high fuel prices, the fuel economy is just too hard to ignore. Yeah, I mean price wise, though the disparity between something like a base Ford Explorer or
0: fairly base Ford Explorer mm-hmm. and the hybrid, I mean is the payback period short enough that
1: this would make sense? Oh yeah. Base for base, no, because you cannot get the Highlander in base trim with the hybrid. Although I would say that the sales split is very low for base models in this segment. So uh, I don't know of, of the Traverse's sales split, but the, at the Ford Explorer launched, it was less than 5% uh, by the base model. Um, and that's pretty true across the lineup. So, uh, the, the bulk of, for instance, Grand Cherokee sales are in the limited trim, and there are more sales above the limited trim in Grand Cherokee than below. So uh, it definitely this 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 category generally tends to skew higher. Um, same with with Highlander, which is why they have the more expensive versions. Uh, limited trim uh, in, in the, uh, the Highlander is generally the uh, the better seller as well. Um, So by the time you're talking about the average shopper in this segment, then the cost differential for the Highlander hybrid is very minor. Yeah, it's not a huge premium. I mean, it's,
0: I believe, compared to just getting like, um, you know, the basic hybrid uh, version, which I think starts about 40,200 with the... uh, with the Highlander. And then if you're looking at something like an XLT, which is second from the bottom all wheel drive, four cylinder Explorer, you know, that starts at 38,540. So the economic argument, if you're going to drive a lot is definitely
1: with the Highlander. There's no doubt about that. And to be honest in this, with this grouping of vehicles and their average fuel economy, you're going to be net positive spending the extra two grand on the hybrid the, the Highlander hybrid one should be clear, not the Ford hybrid, because you will actually get a fuel economy benefit in the Highlander hybrid, but you should be net positive within two years. So even people that are leasing their vehicles for average configurations uh, within the lease period, you will see a benefit. And honestly, at $5 a gallon gasoline, which is what we've been experiencing lately, I mean, it could be nine months, um, it, is, it is pretty significant going from a, a real world average and to be to be clear, remember that when we're talking about this segment, all of the V6s in real world, everyday driving, where you're going around town, stopping at traffic, et cetera, you should expect below 20 MPG. You should be experiencing 19 to 20 in that range, uh, whole, talking about your all-in fuel economy. And in a Highlander hybrid, you honestly should be getting over 30 miles per gallon in that same situation. So, you know, 50% better fuel economy is a pretty big difference when we're talking about that leap from 20 to 30.
0: Yeah, I think I could be persuaded to go with the Highlander if the idea is that this is the everyday car that's going to get beat on and save money for a sports car. But if I mm-hmm. had to drive it as my only vehicle, I think I would still opt for the rear drive bias <laughs> of the natively rear drive explorer. That's yeah. if it's my only. but you can have more, more than one car. By the way, for those of you who might be new to Auto Buyer's Guide and Alex on Autos, Alex, just explain why you are
1: towing so much because you always discuss the need to uh, tow. Yes. Yeah. Towing is a tricky one. So I live in the country and just random things occur in the country as, as, as happens. Um, so tractors, heavy equipment, I, you know, we have a two ton excavator, we have a dump truck, et cetera. So Things need to go in for service you need to move them around here and there um we built our own house and i don't mean paid someone to do it i mean like hammered and chiseled it ourselves dug the foundation out framed the house ourselves etc everything that is or happens on the property um it generally is towed by things so you know pallets of concrete solar panels batteries etc we live off grid at the moment so all of that had to come towed in um, you know, we have forty five thousand gallons of water storage for firefighting protection. All those tanks had to come up, et cetera. Um, so we are we are the um the weekend and weekday warriors that that are usually found in hard hats on on weekends doing just things that just not be done probably. Um, and towing ability in the Durango is very important because where I am, and for my extraordinarily limited use case, a half ton truck just does not work well primarily because of the roads. So I live down a very narrow gravel road with some very tight turns. And with a 26-foot flatbed, any half-ton truck will require a three-point turn to get out on the road, on the paved road. And that's just not worth living through, to be perfectly honest, especially when sometimes people can be parked in odd situations. There's one area near me where there's a group of mailboxes and then there's a flat area. And for some reason, random people park right there, right where people actually have to turn to get down to the main road. It's it's a nightmare um, there. And the Durango is big enough and heavy enough that it tows well at the 8,000, 9,000 pound mark. Um, it's actually heavier than a Ram 1500, go figure. Um, and because you can get the 6.4 liter V8 engine, it has more power and more pull at lower speeds than a Ram 1500 as well. Um, so, you know, 10,000 pounds is not too big of a problem for the Durango, to be honest. Uh, that's way over its payload and, and towing rating, but it handles it fairly well. So that's that. So it's one of the things, it's, like, it's a do as I say, not as I do situation with the Durango. People will confuse my choice of Durango for Durango being the best. And um, and my, my take on the Durango is that I still feel cheated in a way because I did not have a choice. If I want a midsize thing that tows 8,000 pounds or more, there is one option and it's a Durango. So is there anything objectively wrong with the Durango? No, but I also had nothing to compare it to. So it could be good, it could be bad in a world where there could be a comparison made, but we don't live in that world. So anyone who plans to Abe Lincoln
0: his way to a self-sustaining organic farm, Durango. But speaking (laughs) of alternatives in this segment, what would you get if you're looking at Between $35,000 and $55,000, would you get a midsize SUV or would you look at something like maybe, I mean, maybe a Subaru Outback? Would you look at a Chrysler Pacifica or a Kia Carnival? Like there are other options in this price point if you want volume and utility.
1: I mean, to be perfectly honest, volume and utility, if you can stomach the image, minivan is going to be better than any three row crossover, to be perfectly honest, at, at the mission of carrying people and carrying cargo and being more fuel-efficient, generally speaking. Most of the minivans end up being uh, pretty similar or slightly better than their SUV counterpart because of their design. Uh, and of course, there's the Sienna Hybrid, which gets fantastic fuel economy. It has all-wheel drive available as well. You can get a Chrysler Pacifica with all-wheel drive, and you can get a plug-in hybrid Chrysler Pacifica with 30 miles of all-electric range, and it's totally fine. You can fit seven people in it, sheets of plywood, way more cargo than you could in any of these options here. Uh, if you want the unminivan, you could get a Kia Carnival. It's still a minivan, but they tried to make it look kind of like a suburban in the back. I guess um, <laughs> yes. it doesn't doesn't quite work, but you know they're trying. Um, so there there are options out there for for families. Um, you know, if you if you really want that sporty lifestyle you know honestly none of these things are 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 outdoorsy except for the Grand Cherokee so if you really want to go you know do that that BLM land you know off-roading adventure thing you probably want a Wrangler or a Bronco anyway um so maybe none of these would be the best fit either uh, it it is sort of like that that minivan station wagon thing from the 80s and then from this you know 90s 80s and 70s etc where People said, well, you know, the problem with the station wagon was it didn't do anything well. And that's why we replaced it with the minivan. Um, but to be perfectly honest, you know, going backwards, there are things that those others do better than what we have now. You know, the sport utility vehicle doesn't handle as well as a station wagon. It's not as cargo practical as the minivan, but it does give you that that sense of like, uh, I don't know, uh, difference. So, you know, I'm, I'm not my mom because I don't have the minivan
0: yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. If I want to have fun in in the price point we were discussing, I'm probably going to go back to my list of best selling midsize SUVs. The Wrangler was on there. We excluded it for truck reasons, but I would probably go with a Wrangler for fun. Take down the roof, take off the doors, go off road, go anywhere. That's a hell of a lot of fun. If I want utility, well, I'm driving my Chevrolet Bolt around the Philly metropolitan area, and you know, my Chevy Bolt was made in 2015. My Volt has 35 miles, maybe 37 miles of rated electric range, and I never turn on the gas engine. So just from a utilitarian standpoint, I'm going with the Chrysler Pacifica plug-in. If I'm spending this kind of money, I need big interior volume. uh, I'm definitely going with the Pacifica plug-in. I'm taking my $7,500 from the federal government, any state incentives I can get. And I don't care how dorky it is because I can put all the bikes I want inside. And if I need to pick up clients for my watch business at the airport, I can grab them all in one fell swoop
1: or to be perfectly honest you could buy a you know a luxury uh, plug in you could buy something like a Volvo XC60 for you know not too far off this price point either with the plug in hybrid system And uh, you know, if you're worried about that lack of the third row, ask yourself: Do you really use the third row? And why are you using the third row? Is it because your grandparents might visit on some odd occasion? Go rent a minivan for that occasion. Is it because you know someone wants you to do the the crowd, you know, the the community carpool to school? Well, maybe you should say no and have the two row vehicle. So that way, you don't get stuck driving.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think we should mention the 600-pound Gorilla in the room, because we haven't talked about the Kia Telluride or the Hyundai Palisade. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us mentioned either one as the vehicle we choose, and both of them are so sickeningly
1: in demand that you just can't ignore yeah. it. You gotta address- they are, I I have to say, though, they are excellent, and if you put the two together, they outsell the Traverse by a long way. Yes, um, the two together use about almost almost two hundred thousand units. They're both absolutely excellent options. Um, and I would buy them over uh, a Highlander v six or a pilot or a traverse or I would probably buy the Telluride over the Explorer for its utility and practicality inside. The Telluride is incredibly well packaged. So it has over 117 inches of combined legroom. It's 21 cubic feet of cargo space. It has a big, big interior. The second row is a little bit narrow, but it's not narrower than the Explorer. It is narrower than, than Pathfinder and Grand Cherokee L, mind you. Um, but... Other than that particular complaint, I think that the Telluride actually does a really good job of of, uh, being a a very strong competitor, which is why it came out of nowhere, and it really ate into everybody else's sales. And honestly, Kia just can't build them fast enough. Yeah, and I double-checked the Palisade the other day at the New York Auto Show. I went in on press days. Uh, It has been
0: mildly refreshed. The interior was attractive before. It's attractive now. It has been made better in some ways, more opulent, faster wireless charging, heated third-row seats. We have a new horizontal emphasis dashboard that has long vents that spread from flank to flank. The material quality is top notch. The exterior is now less weird looking. And I have to say that based on the quality of what you find inside, I, I would put it very close to some of the upper trim Grand Cherokees. Once you start loading it up with options, it becomes very comparable. And while it's not nearly as large in terms of platform size, wheelbase, and overall length, it does feel quite livably roomy inside. And I would absolutely cross shop Palisade. If I were looking at standard wheelbase Grand Cherokee, it is a very appealing vehicle. Powertrain yeah. not interesting,
1: but it's great in package. Yeah. Here's an interesting question, though. Is it aspirational? And I think maybe that's part of why it didn't come up. So, I mean, if I'm thinking of aspirational vehicle that I would want to buy, Um, Grand Cherokee is the only one on the list that I think is in that aspirational category. I don't think I would ever aspire and dream of one day owning a Highlander or a pilot or whatever. You just end up needing one because you have kids, you have a dog, you have a this, you have a that, you live in suburbia and you need this thing. And then I'm going to pick the most attractive thing or the most reliable thing or the one that fits me best. And, you know, Telluride's is very attractive. It has that mini Range Rover vibe going on. But is it aspirational in the same way that a Grand Cherokee is aspirational? I don't think the
0: Hyundai name is, but if you pitch the Palisade as a baby Genesis, it mm-hmm. becomes borderline aspirational. I think that's, that's when you start thinking of it as a cut above Kia. And I, I still don't think as strong as they've been in the public imagination, Hyundai and Kia. Or that disparate in style or a market positioning. But I do think that if you pitch the Palisade as kind of like a pocket Genesis, you start to look at it as borderline aspirational. And certainly the materials quality you find in the upper trim
1: levels feels that way. Yeah, I think it's that, it's that vehicle that's, you know, for me, would not be aspirational, but would be the, if I need the three row thing, then I will pick the best of the three row things around. And those names do come up. Um, really more than, than Pilot or, or Explorer, or et cetera, et cetera. Um, Palisade and Telluride definitely come up frequently in that. And you can tell that, I mean, Kia is knocking it out of the park. They have the highest percentage over MSRP transaction value in the United States right now. Um, it is insane what people are willing to pay for a Telluride uh, or the EV6, et cetera. So I think it goes to show that it's a very attractive design. And for those of you out in TV land,
0: that may be yet another reason you want to consider a minivan. I'm not saying there are deals to be had, but there's at least inventory out there. Um, You know, it is a feast or famine market right now. And if you're interested in a minivan, there are probably some dealers that are interested in talking to you, especially if you're buying an older model. Um, So, yeah, keep your mind open. uh, Check out what your budget is and then find any vehicle, not necessarily midsize SUV, that fits your needs and i think that's kind of the lesson here uh don't chase what's popular if you can find something that works just as well alex do you have any
1: closing thoughts nope i think that's about it if you're looking for a deal though the only brand practically that was selling below msrp was alfa romeo so uh you know check out that stelvio and the julia because they are fun to drive that's a fact well that is a
0: tale for another day this is time out tim out alex out and thanks for logging on
1: And don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already done so, and uh, all those other things that you're supposed to be clicking on and uh, doing socially.